Herod had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, James. Those of you who know James can welcome him here for this short period of time. He, of course, is a member here and is a missionary in a very secure part of the world. So if you want to hear more about that, you can go and talk to James. Before I dive into Acts chapter 2, we have just a little bit of housekeeping to take care of. If you received the e-news this week or if you received it and opened it, I guess, then you know that we have to make some changes. Uh, This this week is slightly lighter, but generally uh, this service is at capacity. There's just, there's no room. And so we have entreated the second service to go to the first service, which has not had a lot of success. Uh, But we recognize that a a lot of that is you depend on youth third through fifth grade and equipping hour. That's all happening during the first service. So you can't be in two places at once and we're sympathetic to that limitation. So the elders have met and beginning September 11th, we are moving youth third through fifth grade and adult equipping hour from the first service to the second service, which will push about 80 to 100 people into the first service. The first service is actually fun because what I say doesn't end up online and I have a little more freedom than I have at this service. So there's that too. But September 11th, Sunday, you can know that that's coming if that applies to you. Um, and we hope that it does. All right, Acts chapter 12. We are coming to this passage that uh, many of us know where. God strikes Herod Agrippa dead. This is memorable because it is gross. Luke vividly points out that not only did God strike him dead, he was also eaten by worms. And as I read this week, likely we're talking about tapeworms that can grow a foot to foot and a half. And when it gets as bad as it probably was with Herod, you actually vomit the worms up, which is really disgusting. But I know I have all the kids' attention right now. So with that in mind, we have to do the most important thing we always have to do when we, when we approach a passage. We have to ask ourselves, what's the main point of this passage? It's not worms. And, and it's not even modern mes- medicine. Yes, I'm thankful that we live in an age of modern medicine where worms usually don't kill us anymore. But what's going on here isn't just worms. God struck Herod dead. And so if God wants to strike someone dead, he can do that in any age, by any means that God wants to. So I'm sitting at this passage uh, last Sunday evening, I guess, and kind of looking at it and praying, what, what is the main point of this passage? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. The main point is pride. I mean, Herod is this great and awful picture of pride. And we can see a lot about pride. And it's so nice just to have a topic one week that I don't struggle with. So there's that. Herod was full of pride. He's 
on a rampage. He's persecuting the church of God. And God uses Herod both as an example to us and as a grace to the early church that he was persecuting. Because you remember from last week, hopefully, Herod had executed James, one of the most influential Christians in the whole of the early church. He had imprisoned Peter. He had, intention, he had intentions of executing him, but an angel showed up, let Peter out. And now Herod is incensed because he is the king. He's in control and he can't believe that Peter got away. And so pride is causing Herod not only to bring a lot of distress to the church, but it's also driving him mad and it will be at the end as we will see his end. And so, you know, I've told you every week I, I pray about the main point and by God's grace, I feel like he usually shows me. And then the next thing I do is pray, well, God, how do I need to grow in this thing? Because I like to not be a hypocrite and at least be repenting of whatever sin I see on the topic before I try and dare teach anybody else about it. And so I was praying this week and God graciously, I guess, answered my prayer. And it came in the form of, well, earlier this summer, I, I kind of acknowledged and realized I'm in the, I was in the worst shape of my life and it's time to get back to the gym in the morning. And so my gym is like a class workout where like 15 people are doing it together. And one of the, the, the workout began with a mile run. And I didn't mean to do this, but I, we, we walk out there and I'm just sizing everybody up. Like I, I, I'm hoping that I can be in the middle of the pack. That's my goal. I know I won't win, but I sure don't want to be dead last. And by about that, the quarter, first quarter mile mark, I knew this was not going well. <laughs> And then we got to the half mile mark and I was in dead last. I mean, dead last, nobody even close. And I'm running back and I noticed that there was a guy who had stopped and the most generous way I can say this, he didn't look like much of a runner. And so I, I, I came up to him feigning humility, but really glad in my heart that I'm not in the end anymore. I got up to him and said, hey, come on, buddy. I'll, I'll, let's run together. We can finish this together. I'll be with you. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm fine. I'm just legally blind. I have no idea where I am. So I needed to wait for you to catch up so that you could show me the way back. <laughs> so we start running together and turn the corner. And I was like, this is the final straightaway. And the dude smoked me. Now, God was showing me pride in my heart and he didn't strike me dead from it. I'm thankful and I admit this is a humorous example of God answering a prayer that I did pray and showing me something, but pride, if it is left unchecked, is deadly. The consequences of unchecked pride are dire. And I wanna walk through this passage and I wanna really see the lie that, that pride tries and tells us, the consequences of pride, and then lastly, the cure for pride. So, the lie of pride. Pride is more than just being proud of your own accomplishments. At its core, pride is thinking more of ourselves in general than we ought. And so, so we're going to flesh this out. It goes far beyond our achievements. And so there, there are a number of results to this. One result of thinking more about ourselves, more highly of ourselves than we ought, is that we think less of other people. So that's one. Another result of pride we can see in Herod. We tend to think we are in control of things that we absolutely have no control over. So Herod, he had a lot of control. He was king. But even kings have limits to their control. There are things that kings can't do. And we read in the beginning of the passage that, that Herod was 
mad. He was mad at the people in Tyre and Sidon. We don't know exactly why, but the way that he handled this anger was to cut them off from the grain that Israel produced. So the region that Herod oversaw is basically like the breadbasket of the Middle East. So whatever, I don't know, Kansas and North Dakota and Idaho are to us, (laughs) that's what Herod's region of Israel was to the surrounding areas. They provided the food. So Tyre and Sidon come to Herod, and they are trying to make peace with him, which you get the feeling that Herod is all too happy to have the little people come and grovel to him. It fuels his delusions of grandeur. And we can also read, this is outside of the Bible, so take it with a grain of salt, but uh, the, the ancient historian, the Jewish historian Josephus, records what happened when Tyre and Sidon came to Herod. So early in the morning, before the sun rose, Herod got up and he robed himself in pure silver. And so at daylight, all, you know, I guess the contingencies of Tyre and Sidon had gathered in the amphitheater and King Herod walks out dressed in silver. The sun is rising on the opposite side of the amphitheater and he's radiating like an angel. And this is where Luke tells us, he records that the crowd began to shout, this is the voice of God, not a man to which Herod did not deny, and God strikes him dead. Herod's not the only example that we have of this kind of pride in the Bible. You may remember Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four. He is the most powerful person on earth at this time, king of Babylon. And in Daniel four, verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar says, is is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. So Herod is looking out over everything that he's technically in charge of, and he's giving himself all the credit for having built everything that he sees in front of him. Never mind all the things that are totally outside of Nebuchadnezzar's control. I think I said Herod, I mean Nebuchadnezzar. I, I, never mind that he was born to whom he was born, when he was born, with the gifts and abilities and opportunities that he was born with. Never mind all those things that he has no control over. He wants to take credit for all of it. And God brings him down. Pride is a deadly thing, both emotionally and spiritually. And if we think about pride, again, as thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, then there are basically two faces to pride based on how your life goes. So you can think of them as two sides to the same coin. The first face is boasting. So when pride causes somebody to think from our hard work and our ingenuity that our accomplishments are ours and we want to get credit for all of it. We want everyone to admire us and to give us credit for the things that we have done and we don't want to give credit to anyone else and certainly not God. And, you know, this is obviously Herod and Nebuchadnezzar. You can see that clearly. And although I don't think there are any rulers in our midst that I'm aware of, We still struggle with the same thing today. We pat ourselves on the back when we save enough money. We pat ourselves on the back when we get a promotion. We, we, you know, just kind of radiate when our kids turn out reasonably well. And there's a whole lot in that department that we don't control. But what happens when prideful people don't accomplish the things that they want to accomplish? This is the second face of pride. Pride prevents us from suffering and enduring well. 
Pride doesn't accept the hard diagnoses. Pride doesn't accept the hard providence. Pride tells us that we, we do deserve better circumstances, that it's other people's fault. When we don't excel in the places that we think we should excel in, when we don't hit the goals that we think we should hit, and then without even realizing it, what happens is that we begin to actually take pride in our sufferings. Do you see this? It's a slow thing. And when that happens, we take pride in our sufferings. What we see isn't boasting, it's self-pity. And so boasting says, I deserve admiration because of the things that I've accomplished. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because of my suffering. Two sides of the same coin. Boasting is what prideful, accomplished people experienced, and self-pity is what prideful, unaccomplished people experience, and both are incredibly harmful to our lives. You may remember in John chapter 5, the invalid at the pool of Bethesda, he was 86 years old, and the, the, the belief there is that if you could get into this pool at a certain time, in a certain way, that you could be physically healed. And this man had all kinds of excuses as to why he had not been healed. And he he said, I I can't move. There's nobody here to take me. And even if they can take me, they never get me in at the right time. And Jesus walks in and asks him one simple question. Do you want to be healed? And so it seems like he's cutting to the heart of his pride. Do you you want to give up this self-pity, your pride, about how much you've suffered? And do you actually want to be healed? And then Jesus heals him. So... How do we know if we struggle with pride? There's a, there, I, I had a lot more examples, far too many from my own life than I care to admit, but I have a lot more examples than I can fit in one sermon. But here are a few tests to just help us, if we're honest with ourselves, to know where we are in engaging with pride. One test is, do you find yourself, you know, maybe when you go to bed, maybe when you're driving the car, just mentally dwelling on all that you've accomplished? on all that you've achieved? Do you find yourself walking into a room and immediately, maybe even subconsciously, just thinking why you're better than everybody else in the room? But in all these different categories, but, but you find something with everybody that makes you feel like you're better. Or, the other side of the coin, do we find ourselves angry at bitter? Angry and bitter when we look at people who we perceive to have things that we should have or who stand between us and our goals. Do we blame them for it? Do we blame God for the hard things in our life? And if we do, then there's a good chance that there's some element of pride reigning in our heart. Here's a more subtle test. What do you do when you walk into like a dinner party or a big room? What, 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 how do you decide where you're going to sit? who you're going to hang out with. Because we can either look at people in a room or at a table and think of what they offer me or what I can humbly offer them. Another way to say it is we can think about what they offer me or we can look at them as actual people. (laughs) And so it made me think about, I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but I grew up at First Presbyterian Orlando and it was kind of a known thing. There was this one guy, he was a politician, he'd walk into church, everybody's kind of just hanging out and he would walk in and he would just do this kind of look around. I'd even seen him get on his tippy toes. And he was just looking for the person that would benefit him the most. The, he would, and inevitably, whoever he'd go to would be rich or powerful, or have something. And he became kind of a joke in the church because he would walk in and immediately think, who in this room serves me? And I contrast that by a friend I wish I could name, but I won't because he confided in me. He said, Jim, 
the way that I combat pride, in, or the way that, one of the ways that I fight pride in my life, is when I walk into a room, I look for the person who offers me the least and to make sure to sit next to them. And from that moment on, I was always worried that he would sit next to me. <laughs> and the reason I was worried about it is because of my own pride. And then our culture, you know, has this whole new way to fuel and display our pride in the form of social media. You see posts like, Johnny Jr. got five home runs and three stolen bases and pitched a perfect game. Hashtag humbled. <laughs> I gotta, that's not what I'm seeing there. Or somebody, I, I just want to let everybody know that I've got this new promotion, a new job. I'm now making six figures and just humbled to be able to tell you about it. It's like, ah, oh, that... That's not how I'm receiving it. What we present on social media, it really displays a lot of what's in our hearts. And Angela and I have lots of conversations over the years about what we're posting and asking ourselves hard questions about the motives inside of us. And so this idea that we are in control and the world exists to serve us, whether we are successful at that or not, is fundamentally a lie. It's a poison. It's a poison like carbon monoxide. You know, every hurricane season, when a hurricane comes through Orlando, you hear a tragic story of somebody who probably is not from here very long. They get a, the power goes out, they get a generator, they put it inside their house, and what happens? The generator develops carbon monoxide and that whole family dies without even realizing that they're being poisoned. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. Apparently, you don't really see the symptoms along the way. You just get tired and you die. That is a picture of pride. When pride creeps into our life, it's a poison that has dire consequences. That's a very hard word. Dire consequences in our lives. So let's flush out some of these. There are three main consequences that we see in the passage as a result of pride. First, it steals our joy. I mean, just look at Herod. Does he look like a happy man? Does he look like a joyful man? He's angry. The whole passage is angry. He's angry when, at Christians. He's angry when he couldn't execute Peter. He's angry at Tyre and Sidon. He had everything you could possibly want in that day, and he's still angry. He's not satisfied. He's not joyful because pride rips joy away from us. So I very hesitantly am going to tell you about an article I read interviewing people who used to serve in the Trump administration. Now, this has nothing to do with policies. I don't care. I don't, I, I don't want to get into policies. But there was a common refrain from people who were very close to Trump. And the common refrain was, and by the way, I don't think I'm stepping on too many toes to say that our former president might have struggled with pride just a little bit. So, whether we like his policies or not. But the common refrain was that he never laughed and he never smiled. We never saw him laugh or smile. That's what pride does. It sucks that joy out of your life. So let's go back for a minute to this pride of, of lie. The pride of lie is thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And the result is that we can be surrounded by truly great things, by things that should give us joy, but we cannot experience that joy because we only want to look for greatness and glory within, not from without. So we just, we look at these great things and now all we see is something that at the very least makes us bored, at worst makes us jealous. But we cannot experience that joy from the good things happening around us. I read an article this week and the author said, while humility sees glory and wants to praise it, pride sees glory and wants to possess it. So we yawn at the Grand Canyon as we gaze at the mirror. This is why 
Pride is such a terrible thing, and it leads to all these other sins in our lives. You have pride when, when this poison comes into our life. It gives way to jealousy because you can't rejoice when something good happens to somebody else. It leads to bitterness because we can't handle being wrong and losing face. It leads to deceit because we will do anything to get the accomplishments and achievements that we think we deserve. It leads to hypocrisy because we are scared to be seen for who we really are. It leads to slander. Because we will insist on revenge to be able to be seen by certain people the way that we want to be seen, and at least agreed because we are going to seek glory, at least agreed because we are seeking glory where it fundamentally cannot be found, so our desire is insatiable. It cannot be satisfied. And all these things work together to suck the joy out of the life of the people who are given to pride. And the pursuit of this life, it's, it's not just joyless, it's exhausting. It will wear you out and not give you what you want. That's first. Second, pride pushes people away. So pride is going to make people either in conflict with those around them or isolated from the people around them. Often both conflict comes first, then isolation. And it's no coincidence that this passage, it begins with the conflict that Herod had with Tyre and Sidon. It comes on the heels of the conflict that Herod had with Christians, in particular with James and Peter. And I think it's really interesting to think about how many, uh, you look at all the other vices in the Bible, the Bible talks about, and how you actually see community built around those vices. You know, you see community built around things like alcohol and sex and drugs and gambling and cats. I actually got a lot of heat last week for my cat comment, so I, re- I will not have any more. I'm sorry, Liz. I do like your cats. Um, but you see community built around all these other vices, but not pride. Pride is the only one that isolates you completely, that drives everyone around us away. Because we were made for community, but pride is going to isolate it. It's going to prevent that from happening. The prideful person looks at people around them constantly evaluating, what do you have to offer me? How am I better than you? And that doesn't draw anybody in. That pushes everyone away. And, and you may, a prideful person, may perceive themselves to be very popular because there are a lot of people around them not realizing that all their relationships are an inch deep and maybe nobody around you really even likes you. You can be surrounded with people and absolutely isolated from the community that you need. Third, and most importantly, pride separates us from God. So if you observe all the things that God hates in the Bible, (laughs) I don't think there's anything that God seems to hate more than pride. There are dozens of verses communicating God's hatred of pride pride and God's hatred of the proud. Proverbs 16 says that pride comes before destruction. Or some of your translations, you grew up here, pride comes before the fall. Proverbs 26 says that it is better to be a fool than it is a prideful person. Pride has devastating effects. God hates it. Unlike all these other vices that we are, you know, we see God's grace and his patience in in a lot of other sins, but something's different about pride. God actually says, not only does it hate it, he opposes it. So I mean, can you just think for a second what a scary thing it is that there is a quality that we can embrace if we're not careful, it's already in us, but we can let it take us over that is so bad that the God of the universe will actually oppose us. That's serious. 
That's what pride does. So why is it that pride is so bad? Why is it so deadly? Why does God hate it so much? And how specifically does it separate us from God? Because pride makes us think that we should be on the throne. Pride causes us in our hearts to constantly be dethroning God and enthroning ourselves. In every area of our lives, we constantly dethrone God and we put ourselves back on that throne which is basically saying, I want to be in control. I know better than God. I am going to be a kind of God over my life. That's why God hates it so much because he, it, it is directly confronting and denying who it is that he tells us he is. And so this is, you know, we, 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 we see, if you know Genesis chapter three, all the way back to Adam and Eve, this is what causes all the problems in our world. Every problem comes from pride because Adam and Eve were living in perfect harmony with God and the serpent comes in and he tempts their pride. And he says, you're not allowed to drink, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What, you, you don't wanna have that knowledge? Why can't you have that knowledge? And what he's doing is then saying, maybe it's God who is the prideful one. Maybe God in his pride doesn't want you to have things that you should have. And so what happens, the serpent tempts their pride. He lies about who God is. They eat and in so doing, create every problem that we exist because every human who is all of us, who came from Adam and Eve would then be born into this active rebellion where we live a full life of wanting naturally to dethrone God out of our hearts and rethrone, enthrone ourselves. So remember how I said that pride prevents us from glorying in things bigger than ourselves. I mean, that includes the Grand Canyon, but it especially and primarily includes God. There is no one more glorious in this universe and beyond than the God of the Bible, and pride is going to prevent us from seeing that glory because we're only consumed with finding the glory within ourselves. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells the people who are listening that to enter the kingdom, you have to become like a child. And I really think this gets to the heart of, of the issue of pride. Because children have this, yes, they're sinful, but they have this beautiful ability to glory and wonder in things that have long lost their glory to a grown person. I, I have had one kid who had about 10 words in his vocabulary, but one of them was moon. And every time that moon would come up, he'd say, moon, moon, moon. And I was like, it's just a moon. What's the big deal? But he was able to glory and wonder in God's creation in a way that I had kind of lost. I had another kid when he was four. We were talking about how God made everything. God created everything. He had lots of questions. Well, if God created everything, what about this, this, and this? And one of the questions was, what about the trees? Yes, God creates all the trees. That night, I caught him sneaking out of the house to go and see if he could see God planting all, all the little seeds, which I had woefully miscommunicated how God creates things. But the point was, he was consumed with awe and wonder and grandeur, and he wanted to see it. He wanted to see God do this. He wanted to know it. But what happens when we get older is that our pride grows and our capacity to wonder and to worship in the mystery and, and grandeur of God just diminishes because our pride's growing up inside us. And this isn't a problem that happens outside the walls of a church. You know, you, you see, this is something we do too. You, we, I, we see people who take pride in their knowledge of the Bible. 
They, they, they know all these verses. They know what goes on in all these chapters, but instead of that leading them to this awe and wonder and in the mystery and grandeur of God, it's really just serving the idol of intellect. This is something that all of us deal with, all of us are going to if it goes unchecked in our life. These are just different ways of dethroning God in our hearts. And so the search, that search from within instead of without is what keeps us doing the most important thing we're going to need to do in this life, which is repenting. A prideful person can't repent. A prideful person has to admit that I can't find the glory inside of me. A pride, a repentance is fundamentally turning from everything that I've devoted myself to, turning from our sin and our enthroning ourselves as God and opening ourselves to a glory that we can never provide. Praising glory rather than desiring and being consumed with possessing it. The Christian life is a life of consistently, monthly, hourly, daily, dethroning ourselves and enthroning God. Daily, realizing in, in the little things and the, in the big things, I'm, I'm not on the throne right now and I need to dethrone myself and enthrone God in my heart. Whether that's marriage or running at a gym class. Do you remember in John chapter five where Jesus is speaking to glory-seeking Pharisees. He tells them, you can't believe because of the way you're seeking glory. 544, how can you believe? When you, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God. So their inability to seek the glory of God and their seeking glory from men is preventing them from, from believing in the first place. And this is exactly what Herod is doing. He's seeking glory by exalting himself. And if he, he will do whatever it takes to do that. If that means killing Christians, so be it. If it means cutting the masses off from his food sources, he'll do it. If it means giving grand public pompous speeches dressed in a way where he's gonna shine like an angel, he'll do it. If it means being called a God in his own right, a God he will be because he is consumed with the search for glory within himself that he will never find. And I mean, just it's, it's really ironic if you think about it, if anybody would be able to find glory with and in themselves, it would be people like Herod and Nebuchadnezzar, but they can't. It's insatiable and the frustration from not being able to find that glory within, it drives them crazy because they're looking in the wrong area. It separates from God. So we have to choose who, where it is that we're going to seek glory. Are we going to seek glory among men? Because praise from men is never going to give us the glory that we long for, and in fact, it's just going to take us farther from it. Ultimately, the glory that we seek is only found in Jesus Christ, who is the only cure for our pride. I'm gonna say this a different way. The humility of Jesus Christ is the cure for our pride. There has never been a more humble expression of love in the history of this world than the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Paul says that, that so by incarnation, I mean him taking on flesh. So Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, which is weird to think about. He emptied himself by adding something. 
But that's what he did. He emptied himself by adding flesh because the creator is being a par- becoming a part of creation. There, there's no social gap that we could imagine uh, to understand the gap between creator and creation. And a voluntary creator voluntarily comes and becomes a part of creation. And it doesn't stop there. He lived a humble life by anyone's standards, not just American standards, by the standards of the people in that day. He lived a life that was marked by humility. You remember Jesus said in Matthew 8, for foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I mean, let the tragedy of that land with us. And then he lived a life that our pride would never allow us to live. Going to the cross in the most humiliating and humble possible way, naked, stripped as a criminal on that cross to pay the price that we all deserve for our pride, the very wrath of God. And his humility doesn't stop there. Even in his resurrection, he still adorns the humility of humanity. He is and forever will be the God-man because of his humility. It's Jesus' humility that cures our pride. Nothing else, no other worldview, no other worldview even comes close to addressing our pride and the consequences therein because every other worldview offers some prideful, self-righteous way to fix it. Whether you're trying to follow the Mosaic Law or the five pillars or be a good person or do more good than bad, however that works out, those are all inherently prideful ways to seek something that they want to earn. Only in Christianity does Jesus says, your pride is so bad, you cannot have the glory of God. You can't see the glory of God. You can't experience the glory of God. So God came to us humbly to bring us that glory in Jesus Christ. There's no other worldview that explains it or fixes it or even comes close. And I say this often, but it drives me crazy when unbelievers look at Christians as prideful and condescending people because the whole of the Christian life, not just the starting point, the whole of the Christian life is admitting, I can't do it and I need help. I can't do it, I need a savior. How is it that we would be called the prideful people? We're the ones saying we can't do it. Live, be more good than bad, can't do it. And that wouldn't help it if I could. And you see this even in our reformed tradition. You know, people will come across the sovereignty of God and think I am superior to everyone around because I know something about the sovereignty of God. Not realizing who is it that opened your eyes to that thing? God. So if we have a prideful Christian, reformed or not, I'm thinking you have a long way to go in your understanding of grace and the sovereignty of God. Because grace and the sovereignty of God do not exist well with pride and thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Jesus' humility, it destroys pride because it reminds us that this world is not about us. This life is not about us. There is a throne and not only do we not belong on it, we don't want to be on it. We've seen how that's gone. I'm, I, I make a miserable king over my life, and so do you. And it helps us to see that there's a glory 
far beyond and far more satisfying than anything that we could ever create or claim in and of ourselves. And only Jesus opens our eyes to that. Jesus, the power of his Holy Spirit, we're able to see that Jesus is offering forgiveness from our pride and then through his Holy Spirit living inside us allows us to actually become increasingly more humble in this life. Not perfect, we're never gonna be perfect until Jesus comes back or we go there. But we can live a real, tangible life walking away from pride, walking into humility, and experiencing the joy and the satisfaction that we're designed to experience from glorying in someone other than ourselves. And I don't think it's a coincidence that at the end of this chapter, Luke says, and the word of God increased and multiplied. Just think about this for a second. If we are humble and we are joyful, the result is fruitfulness. If pride is fundamentally pushing people out of our lives, humility would naturally bring people in. It's, it's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then love others as yourself. That's what we're seeing in the early church. They're humbling themselves, experiencing the joy of the glory of God, and as a result, the word of God is increased and multiplied. Thousands of people are coming into the kingdom. That's God's design. They would change us and make us joyful and humble and use us to open other people's eyes to the same reality. Only the humility of Jesus reigning in us can do that. Angela, in her quiet times, reads a devotion by Paul Tripp. How many any of y'all have the Paul Tripp devotion? I knew some would. It's a fantastic devotion, and it is uncomfortable how many times she will send me a little picture, and it applies to something that I need to hear in my life. This time it was for all of us, so there you go. So Paul Tripp writes, and stay with me because this is awesome. The Bible is a story of kingdoms in conflict, humility and pride. And that battle rages on the field of your heart. It rages for control of your soul. The two kingdoms in conflict cannot live in peace with one another. There will never be a truce. There is no safe demilitarized zone where you can live. Each kingdom demands your loyalty and your worship. Each kingdom promises you life. One kingdom leads you to the king of kings and all the other and the other sets you up as king. The big kingdom works to dethrone you and decimate your little kingdom of one while the little kingdom seduces you with promises it cannot deliver. The big kingdom of glory and grace is gorgeous from every perspective, but it doesn't always look that way to you. The little kingdom is deceptive and dark, but at points it appears to you as beautiful and life-giving. You either pray that God's kingdom will come and that his will be done or you work to make sure your will and your way win the day. One path leads to life, the other death. And so our hope is that we would be a church that would know at a deep level that there is a king and we are not him. That there is a kingdom and it does not belong to us, but we have access to it. We can, we can become a part of it because of the humility of Jesus Christ. And when we come into that kingdom, we are given a kingdom purpose that we will never know if we are only searching for our glory. And the hope is that we would be confronted, whether we've walked with Jesus for 50 years or five days or never have, we would be confronted with a type of humility and glory that we would want 
We would want to give up the exhausting pursuit of our own glory and experience the glory of God that we then might be humble, joyful, and fruitful. I mean, it's crazy to think that just by pursuing humility, that alone could have kingdom impact that is more important than anything else that we're doing in this world. Humility. Pride is as bad as it gets. And humility is greater and more of a blessing in any way we could possibly imagine it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We are a group of prideful people, all of us. But our prayer is that you would do something that only you can do and let us desire to not be prideful. Help us to desire humility and all your glory that comes with that humility. Help us to live joyful, fruitful lives of significance and purpose no matter what our day job is. May our families and our friends be blessed by that pursuit. May they be brought closer to you. God, we thank you. We love you and we ask this in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.